How do I forgive a parent who should love and protect me and doesn't? Thanks for starting us out with an easy question. Forgiveness is the canceling of a debt. Before I want to answer this question, it's possible. I don't know if it applies to this situation. I don't know the situation, so I'm shooting blind. So please bear with me. But it's possible, whoever is asking this, that your parent loves you more than they're communicating to you. Parents, when they have uh, give birth to a child, their hearts burst with love. And part of them says, I will do everything I can to protect this child. Because I love this child so much that anything happening to this child, would it would break me, it would destroy me. But what that sometimes happens is the parent becomes too protective, too restrictive, and doesn't communicate that love in a way that the child feels as love. So the parent loves the child, but the child is just not receiving it, not, it's not getting communicated to them. There are some parents who, because life has broken them so much, they, they don't have the kind of love that a child needs. And maybe that's what's happening in this situation. But let's look at this issue of forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive someone? Forgiveness means canceling a debt. Forgiveness is costly. Imagine that you have a, a vehicle and someone, uh, you, you get a, a brand new sports car, very expensive sports car for your birthday, and your friend comes along, takes a crowbar to it, smashes out the windshield, smashes it full of dents. Damage has been done. If you forgive your friend for doing that, you're releasing him from his debt to you to either be punished or to have to pay out of his pocket to fix your car. Now here's why forgiveness is costly, because if you forgive your friend, you are now stuck with the cost of fixing the car yourself. This is what happens if we are emotionally injured by someone else. They owe us something. They owe us restitution. They owe us to make it right. Or they at least owe it to us to experience some kind of misery or punishment themselves. They need to pay for what they have done. Now forgiveness says, I release you, I forgive you for doing that. But there's still damage in you. Now, it's costly to forgive, but it's even more costly to not forgive. Because if you don't forgive someone, then it starts entering your mind, I can't be free, I can't find healing until this person makes it right, until this person goes through that. And if that person never changes, you've become a captive to this person. Forgiveness helps, releases the other person, but forgiveness also releases you. Forgiveness is at the heart of the gospel, which is we're going to look at what the gospel is tonight. Before healing can be done, be, can be found, I should say, you have to find the healing savior, the God who can heal you, so that you can release that person because you're not looking to them to heal you anymore, you're looking to God to heal you. And once you have a picture of God, Joseph was able to forgive his brothers because he saw that what Satan meant for evil, God was going to turn around and use for an even greater good. This morning we're going to look at the person of Jesus Christ. This is the central aspect of Christianity. It all hinges on who is Jesus. Other religions, you could take out their founder and you, could, you would still have... You could take Muhammad out of Islam and you'd still have his teachings, you'd still have the basic way to relate to Allah. You could take Moses out of Judaism, you'd still have the Torah, the laws. You can't take Jesus out of Christianity because Jesus did not just give us a set of rules to live by. He didn't just start a club. He offered us a way to be made right with God. He offers us his life 
the promise of his presence. That's what salvation is, which we're going to look at tonight. But it all comes down to, is this Jesus we talk about truly God become man, God revealed in human flesh, is Jesus who he says he was, or is Jesus an imposter? Is he someone who just lied about his identity? Is he someone who was deceived about his identity? Was he a lunatic? Is he someone, is he just the product of the church in the early years making up a legend about a man? In any one of those cases, Jesus is no longer someone who can save us. He's just a figment of our imagination, which is what many people accuse Christians of believing in a, in a fake savior. So everything you hear at this camp, everything this camp stands for, hinges on this fact. Is Jesus the real deal? Or is Jesus a fraud? Is Jesus fake? Is Jesus just mythology? First thing we're going to look at is Jesus mythology. This is, if you get on atheist chat rooms, this is probably where the most current attacks on the person of Jesus Christ are. That he was just a simple peasant, he never left a record, his life is shrouded with mystery, we don't... Some people say we don't actually even know if, if Jesus even existed. We certainly no way to prove that he rose from the dead. Besides, a resurrection is an impossibility because in their world, in their world, God does not exist. And if God does not exist, a miracle is impossible. So it doesn't matter how much historical evidence you give them, a miracle is impossible because there's no God. But if we live in a world where God exists, a miracle is not only possible, a miracle is likely. So that is something we need to establish first. When we look at this historical evidence, we have to remember we have already established that there is a God who made this world. He, he spoke and he turned this complex creation and brought it into existence out of nothing. So, a miracle is not a problem for God. We looked last night at, we've got a historical record of Jesus. We have four biographies written by people who claim to be eyewitnesses of him, claim to live at the same time. Now, a historian, whenever he finds a historical document, he runs it through three tests. This copy I have in my hand, is it an accurate copy of what the original said, or has it been corrupted and copied so many times that we don't even know if this is an accurate copy. I think what we looked at last night, I only touched the surface, you can get into much more depth on your own, but the copies we have, because of all the, the handwritten manuscripts we have to be able to compare, are 99% pure and able to recreate what the original said. But the next question a historian asks, or is this original writer qualified to write on the subject? Meaning, is he an eyewitness? Did he actually see these things? Or did he talk to an eyewitness who sees? Or did this person write three, four hundred years after the fact, in which case so much legend and mythology has crept in that he doesn't even have a chance at recording accurate history? Were the gospel writers eyewitnesses who lived close enough to Jesus so that we can trust what they had to say. Remember Luke in the gospel in the book of Acts that he wrote had recorded 80 historical details which shows that he lived in first century Palestine and that he had a great familiar with customs, with the politicians, with the locations, places Luke proved to be a historian of the highest order, but when did Luke write? Who knows how the, God, the book of Acts ends? It ends on a cliffhanger, right? Paul is on his way to see Nero to plead his case before the emperor. And it just stops mid-journey. 
Why did that happen? If Luke is writing 100, or if the author of Luke, pretending to be Luke, is say writing 100 in 150 AD, 120 years after Jesus died, why would he just end smack dab in the middle of, why doesn't he tell us what happened with Paul? I think the obvious answer is that was when he completed his book. Paul died in AD 64. He was beheaded. So that means the book of Acts had to be written before AD 64. The book of Luke, at the beginning of Acts, Luke says, in my previous account, which is the Gospel of Luke, which means it had to be have written even before that, so we're looking at perhaps late 50s. We've compressed this time period to about 30 years, which is... There are so many eyewitnesses. Legends don't really take off until all the eyewitnesses have died. 30 years is not near enough time for legend to creep in. Luke says that many people have already written up accounts, and Luke seems to use Mark as source material, which puts Mark even earlier than Luke, so about AD 55. John, people say, John talks the most about the supernatural deity part of Jesus Christ. So, to a lot of skeptics, the Gospel of John isn't really a historical piece. It's more of a mythology piece, and he's including all these teachings into Christ. But John uses 50 historical locations that have been proven. John is writing history. John also shows a real familiarity with Jerusalem. Jerusalem was completely flattened and burned when Rome destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70. So that means John has to have been written at least by an eyewitness who was very familiar, who was in that area. So we are looking at these Gospels as being very close. Too close to legend. So they're eyewitnesses. They prove that because when they record details, they get them right. They've been verified by history. They've been verified by the enemy, by people hostile to Christianity, Roman historians, the Jewish writings. The next thing that a historian asks about the writer of this is, is this person trusted to be, can you trust him to be telling the truth or does this look like a propaganda piece? Does this look like it's being made up? There are several strong clues that point that suggest that the gospel writers did not make up the story. In fact, they were so careful to record the truth that they included things that even hurt their cause, things that they would not have included had they been making up. For example, Peter, James, and John were some of the foundational leaders of Christianity. Let's say they get together and say, man, Jesus is dead. We've got to redeem our whole mission. We have to make up a religion. They're going to try to paint themselves in the best possible light for credibility. They're going to want to spread stories of them being really knowledgeable, people that just really won Jesus' admiration. But look at the picture of Peter. Peter betrays Jesus on the night of crucifixion. Peter is rebuked by Christ, where Christ actually calls Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. These men argue about who's the greatest right when Jesus is in the throes of agony, as in the case of James and John. Why do you think they recorded these embarrassing things about their leaders? except for the fact that they thought everything we write, we have got to tell the truth, even if it hurts. If they had been willing to make up the truth in any way, I tell you, these embarrassing details about the disciples would have been some of the first to go. Next, they include difficult to understand things about Jesus. People like Dan Brown have said that this idea that Jesus was God, is the church rewriting the character of Christ. That Christ never would have claimed to be God. Christ just saw himself as a simple peasant who cared about justice and the poor. So they say this idea of Jesus claiming to be God is simply made up. 
Well, if, if you're making up this idea about Jesus being God, why do you include things like Jesus being unable to do miracles? Or Jesus saying, the Father is greater than I? Or Jesus even needing to be baptized? Or Jesus not knowing the time of his return? These can all be explained theologically, but if you're making up this story about Jesus being God, you're just going to, again, take a big eraser to these because they just, they're things you trip on. If the church was willing to put words in Jesus' mouth, which is what skeptics say, in the time after, in the early church, there was three main issues, or three among many issues that the church struggled with. Can women speak? Can women teach in church? Do you have to be circumcised to be saved? Um, there's another one I'm drawing blank right now. But the point is that if they had been willing to put words in Jesus' mouth, they would have just made up, well, thus says the Lord, this is my teaching on women speaking in church. There's nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus address women speaking in the church. With the circumcision controversy, Jesus nowhere says anything about circumcision. My point is that if they had been willing to put words in Jesus' mouth, they would have resolved these controversies easily by just making up, a, making up a teaching that Jesus didn't say. But again, what appears to be the case with these writers is that they are so careful to stay, stick to the facts because that they know this stuff is life-changing. This is the difference between life and death. Some people say, well, if you are biased, if you have a passion for something, you are guaranteed to be blind and you're not gonna be, we're not going to be able to trust you in your ability to record history if you believe it so passionately. You know, there's Holocaust deniers. You're all familiar, I hope, with the Holocaust. What Hitler did burn six million Jews. Let's never forget what's in the heart of man and what can, how evil we can become. There's people who say the Holocaust was just made up by this Jewish propaganda. And there have been Jewish historians who are, have every reason to be passionate to get this history right. Their passion makes them extra, extra careful that they do not record fact unless it's well verified. So a passion for truth can also make you more careful. The point I'm saying is, trying to make, the only reason people reject the Gospels is because they contain supernatural elements and miracles. Because when the Gospels are judged by the standard historians use, the Gospels pass every historical test so much greater than any other historical document. It's only because people say miracles are impossible. And the only reason they say miracles are impossible is because they don't believe in a God. But if there's a God, miracles are possible. Now let's look at this person of Jesus Christ. I hope I've established that we can at least trust the Gospels, these biographies of Jesus, as, historic, as reliable historical documents. These Gospels paint a man, a good and wise man, who teaches with authority who also claims to be God. C.S. Lewis rightly pointed out that this claim to be God removes Jesus from this good moral teacher. Lots of people love to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher. Thomas Jefferson was a deist, which means he didn't believe in a God who was active in creation, just a God who started the world and then went on vacation. You didn't have to interact with this God. Supernatural was impossible to Thomas Jefferson. He accepted Jesus as a good moral teacher, but he went through his Bible literally with scissors and cut out any reference to the supernatural. You will find a lot of people who accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, but it's this claim to be God that removes Jesus from this category of good moral teacher. Because this leaves us with three options. Either Jesus is a liar, meaning he knew he wasn't God, but he still claimed to be God, which doesn't just make him a white, little white liar. It makes him a dark, devious, demonic liar, asking people to place their trust in him and 
tie for him when he knows it's false. Maybe Jesus is a lunatic. He actually believes he's God when he's not. Now, this isn't a small delusion. I can believe that I'm tall and handsome. That's a very, very tiny delusion. But to believe that you are God is a huge delusion, meaning you have lost touch with every part of reality. There is no way you are a good teacher. You need to be contained, quarantined. If you don't even, if you don't have your core identity straight, I don't need to listen to another single thing you say. If you don't have your identity right, and you think you're God, the third option is that Jesus was actually who he claimed to be. That he was God in the flesh. Let's look at these. Was Jesus a liar? First of all, what motivation, when you look at someone's lying, what motivation do you have to lie? Did Jesus' lie earn him money? Did it earn him power? Did it earn him fame? What did this idea, this claim to God, what did it bring him? Death. It's what killed him. Jesus was a Jew, which the Jews have such a respect for God that they are careful to even utter his name. This is not the type of people where you are going to find success in lying about, about this. Uh, also, liars are willing to bend the truth. Liars like to manipulate people. We saw that with Eric Harris at the beginning. But what we see with Jesus is that he was a servant. He was willing to lay down his life. A completely wrong profile for a liar. Jesus also says, which of you convicts me of sin? If you're willing to lie about this, you have a very low moral ethic and you're going to have a, a, a whole track record of wrong deeds. But the historical documents actually claim this because nobody could convict Jesus of sin. There was no historical record of Jesus sinning. So he's clearly not a liar. Jesus said he was the truth. There's a lot of other problems with the liar, especially the fact that a liar would not be able to produce the resurrection. Was Jesus a lunatic? Jesus had great insight into life. I doubt any of you have met people who claim to be God. There are psychological conditions where people have, maybe you've at least seen it in a movie, or at least you've seen a delusional person. As soon as you see someone who is that deluded about himself, you feel awkward being in him because you feel so much pity for this person that he's so deluded. You feel this sense of, like, he's so far beneath you, it just makes you uncomfortable. When people were around Jesus, they had one of three responses. Either anger, or adoration, or fear. Because they recognized there was something so different about this man that it made them tremble. Remember that story when the disciples were fishing all night and they didn't catch a single fish? And Jesus says, let's go out, let's cast your, your net out one more time. Well, we fished all night. Jesus said, just do it. So they, they do it, and immediately they bring in a net full of fish. Peter looks at Jesus and says, Away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. That story when Jesus is out on the boat sleeping and the disciples are terrified that the boat's going to crash and they're going to all drown, Jesus gets up and says, Peace be still. These disciples who were afraid of the power of the wind and the thunder realized <laughs> they were in, a much in front of a much greater power. He is not a lunatic. Did Jesus actually claim to be God? <laughs> you know, Jesus, do you remember that story where 
Jesus is teaching and these his two friends bring a paralyzed man and they can't get him through the door because Jesus is surrounded by people so they cut a hole through the roof and they lower him down on ropes and ropes the first thing Jesus tells this man is your sins are forgiven now think about this Jesus had never met this man before it's one thing if Jacob comes up and punches me and I says I forgive you Jacob but if Jacob goes up and punches Daniel and I say I forgive you Jacob that looks a little weird because Jacob didn't sin against me he sinned against Daniel all sin though in the Jewish understanding is ultimately against God because who's the moral lawgiver God is so to be able to say I forgive you God is the only one who has power to forgive because sins against him David says in Psalm 51 after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered he says to God against you and you only have I sinned because God's the moral lawgiver so Jesus claims a, a similarity to God in being able to forgive sins which Jesus knew his Bible he knew this is a claim to deity he said I and the Father are one Jesus in his parable says that he would be the judge that people stand before he says that he is the bread of life that they, you must drink from him and the Old Testament you people hunger and thirsted after God and Jesus said that he was the living water Jesus clearly claimed to be God and if Jesus did not claim to be God like the skeptics say what what got him killed because he never committed a crime even when they brought him in to be killed they couldn't find two witnesses who would agree on any thing any all the charges were false except for the charge of blasphemy because they refused to see the light about Jesus now Jesus being this good wise man who claims to be God is in a category with no other people there's four categories of people the first category are ordinary people who don't claim to be God that's the vast majority of people now there's also a group of, of people really wise insightful men who don't claim to be God people like Solomon Martin Luther King Jr. <coughs> Moses people who have great insight but the, what's curious about these people is if you start to worship them or praise them too highly they say whoa whoa no 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 <laughs> I'm just a man people who have great insight into life are filled with humility because they see their own flaws bigger than anybody else's there's a third category of people people who are deceitful wicked and claim to be God that's like Hitler Caesars Pharaohs psychopaths or people in the nut house but there's only been in all recorded history only one person who had great moral ethics and insight into life and claimed to be God only one has that combination ever been it's unique in Jesus Christ Jesus also fulfilled and proved this claim to be God by, fu by fulfilled prophecy the hundreds of prophecies about Jesus Jesus fulfilled every one from his virgin birth to the time of his birth Jesus was born into a time where a lot of mothers they knew they'd read the signs they were familiar with Old Testament prophecies they thought now is the time apparently Jesus was a common name back then because a lot of mothers hoped Jesus meant Savior that Jesus would be Jesus is a form of Yeshua Joshua he Savior God saves Yahweh saves in fact there were several other messiahs in the first century who claimed to be the Messiah but every time they died their ministries ended Jesus fulfilled prophecy which means not only did he exhibit 
power. He came onto the scene in the fulfillment of prophecy. Things that Jesus could not have controlled. Jesus had no power over these prophecies. Because if he had just been a man, he would have... But as God, of course, he had he's the one who gave the prophecies. But if he was just a man, he could not have fulfilled prophecies. Jesus proved that he was God by his sinless life. But this is where Jesus knew that even though he'd fulfilled prophecy, even though he had raised people from the dead, even though he had fed the 5,000 and had great teaching, even though when he spoke, he knew people needed more convincing. And he said, when they said, give us a sign that you're who you say you are, he said, no sign will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man would be crucified and would be in the earth and would rise again. So he actually pointed to his death and resurrection. Because if there's one thing, if you're a fraud, that's really hard to do, is raise yourself from the dead. We're going to look at the evidence for the resurrection. Because this is where it hinges. Jesus was willing to stake his claim to deity on whether he was able to rise from the dead or not. The first thing you need to have happen with the resurrection is there for, for there to be an actual death. This was one of the ways the skeptics first tried to attack this when the, in the late 1900s. And they said, one person wrote a story that when Jesus took that sip of vinegar from the sponge while he was on the cross, that it was drugged and that Jesus passed out on the cross and Joseph of Arimathea, who was part of the council, was in on this conspiracy and he's the one who got Jesus taken off the cross before he was fully dead and he was laid in the tomb and he came, he came back. So in, all, in this story, Jesus never actually died. There's several problems with this. First of all, before Jesus even made it to the cross, he was in bad shape. In Gethsemane, he sweat drops of blood, which is a medical condition where you are under so much stress that your blood vessels actually burst. It, when people endure just that, they, it sometimes takes them a long time to recover. You can, almost, you can die from it because you, your body is in such a bad state. It leaves you with an extreme dehydration. So, under this mental stress, Jesus was then whipped, almost bleeding to death. He was so weak he couldn't even carry his cross. And then he was placed on the cross. Now, do you know how the cross actually kills someone? It's one of the most torturous ways devised to kill someone. Because... What they do, they put nails through your wrists and your feet. And as that nail goes through your wrist, there's, have you ever hit your funny bone? You know how your, your whole body, your nerve? Well, when a nail goes through the wrist, it's like someone taking a plier to your funny bone and just twisting it. It's that kind of body shocking pain. Now they put someone on the cross and their weight falls down so that this person can inhale but they can't exhale. In order to exhale, they have to pull themselves up with their hands and their feet so that they can exhale and keep this life cycle of inhaling and exhaling. But in order to do that, they have to pull up on those nails sending sharp, sharp, shots of pain throughout the whole body again. So it's just psychological and mental torture where you don't want to put yourself through that terrible pain again, but your survival, your will to survive pushes you to do it, torture yourself again. It would take some people days to die. So incredibly torturous. On the Passover, the night before the Passover, so we got to take these bodies off. It's, it's desecrating our our sacred holiday. 
So that's why they broke the legs of the other men, because when they broke their legs, then they would no longer be able to push themselves up to a position of exhaling, and so they would die of asphyxiation, which means suffocation. But when they came to Jesus, they didn't have to break his legs, fulfilling a prophecy because Jesus had already died. Jesus said, it is finished, and he, he breathed his last, and the centurion there, of course, said, surely this man is the Son of God. Romans knew how to kill someone. If you bungled an execution, you lost your own life. Romans were good coroners. They could tell when a body was dead because they didn't want to risk a chance that this person actually survived and then they would have to forfeit their life. That's why the soldier, just to make sure, put a spear through Jesus' heart. And water and blood came out, which proved that he had been dead for a while. But here's one of the biggest problems with the whole fake death theory. Jesus somehow resuscitates in that cool tomb. His body is shredded. He's got a hole in his heart. His head's disfigured from the beatings. He somehow finds superhuman strength to move this stone from the outside. He limps towards his disciples who are cowering in their hiding places. Can barely stand up straight before them and says, I have conquered death. Go make disciples of all nations. And he falls flat on the floor. Does that inspire you to risk your life? Does that inspire you to die for this man? No. Jesus clearly died. His friends were the ones who embalmed him. It's, just, it's absurd to think that Jesus did not die. So, the, I'm going to use the acronym. This is not original to me. FEAT. F-E-A-T. A FEAT is an accomplishment. So this is just a category, an acronym to help you remember these evidences. First, the fatal torment. Jesus actually died. Next, we have an empty tomb. Now, there was someone from the Jesus Seminar, which is a group of liberal theologians who basically just try to cast doubt on anything related to the historical details of Christ. They said, there, the tomb is mythology later added to the text. Jesus' body was probably just taken off the cross and thrown to the dogs. So that's what happened to Jesus' body. And so the body just disappeared to the dogs, and then the appearances are just hallucinations. But if you look at the historical text... There's two things about the account of the empty tomb. One, Joseph of Arimathea, who is a rich person, but a member of the Sanhedrin who condemned Jesus to death, says, you can use my tomb. If you are making up the story, you're not going to give honor to the enemy, this hated Sanhedrin who just condemned your master. But here's an even stronger piece of proof. We have women discovering the empty tomb in the accounts of the Gospels. This would have really hurt. Now, this is not to be sexist, because I don't believe this. But in the first century, women were thought of as habitual liars. A man, and this is sad, but a man could not be convicted on the testimony of one woman, on a woman's testimony, because women were thought of as just so emotional that they couldn't be trustworthy. If you are making up the story in the first century of the empty tomb, you're not going to have women be the heroes of discovering it. Because you're... It's like you're, you're putting all your evidence on, on these liars, but the only reason they did that... I want to be clear that that is not how I view women. <laughs> this is just how they viewed women back then. But you're not going to make up that even though, because it's actually hurting your cause. But you do it because you are so committed to the truth. We also knew the tomb was empty because what, did the, what excuse did the Pharisees make up? Does anybody remember? Disciples stole the body. Don't you think that when reports of Jesus' resurrection and these rumored appearances, what's the first thing you're going to do to go squelch this a rumor about Jesus coming back. They got, just got rid of the problem. They don't want him coming back. What are you going to go do? You're going to hunt down the body, parade it through the streets, and put an end to all this. 
They couldn't find the body. The, the enemy said, there's a tomb and the tomb is empty. It wasn't made up. So we have an ap- actual death and then we have an empty tomb. Now we also have appearances. Some people have said how the appearances were just hallucinations. It's, it's fairly common, you know, a mother loses a, a child in war and will have this dream of her son coming back and walking in. She hallucinates it and, and it seems so real that this is her son coming to say hi to her. Then she wakes up and remembers, no, my son's gone. The problem with hallucinations are hallucinations happen only when you kind of expect them. Hallucinations are like a dream that only happened to one person, but and they only ever happen to one person. It's you can't wake up from your cabin and tell you, "Boy, wasn't that an awesome dream we had last night?" You're the only person who got to experience the dream. But Jesus appeared to groups of people, up to 500 people. Here's another thing. Hallucinations might comfort of the grieving, but they would not convict Paul, who was Jesus' sworn enemy. Paul was doing everything he could to stamp out Christianity because he believed this was a heresy that was damning people's souls. Because everyone, cursed is everyone who dies on the tree. He can't be the blessed savior. He died on a tree. He's cursed, people. Don't, you're committing blasphemy by worshiping a cursed person. And so he was zealously trying to stamp out Christianity. But his appearance, his experience of the appearance of the resurrected Christ so transformed Paul that he was willing to give his life proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus' brother James. There's a story in John where Jesus' brothers are actually embarrassed by Jesus. What would it convince you, take to convince you that your brother is God? A lot. <laughs> James writes, he wrote, he wrote his epistle, James. He says, our God and Savior. He refers to his brother as God. He went from, look, I grew up with this guy. He's not God, trust me. He burps, he smells, he's not God. But something convinced him that he was God. Jesus appeared to him. That would be an amazing thing to see your brother resurrected. The appearances. There's no way, there's something supernatural about them that going to the wrong tomb, hallucinations, none of those account for how hostile witnesses can be converted. So the, the F is fatal torment, the E is the empty tomb, the A is the appearances that converted hostile witnesses. The T is the transformation. And this is amazing. The Jews believed, Jews are hard-headed. They had been through a lot in the Old Testament. They had been repeatedly taken captive by other people. But the Jews also had a profound fear of God that made them impervious or almost impossible to change their minds because they feared God more than they feared man. So when man told them to desecrate their sacrifices or to renounce their beliefs, they refused to because they, they feared risking God's wrath versus any type of wrath of man that could come there. They had certain customs. Their holy day was Saturday. Strict monotheism. They believed in just one God. Uh, they believed in animal sacrifice, keeping ceremonial laws for purification. Nobody could beat this out of the Jews. And then within a few years, large thousands of Jews are suddenly preaching a trinity, believing that God is three in one. Still one God, but revealed in three persons. They are worshipping on Sunday. They have abandoned the animal sacrifice, which was their only hope. They have abandoned the ceremonial laws. What convinced them, what transformed them to suddenly risk God's wrath 
The only thing that accounts for that transformation, the only thing that accounts for Christianity getting off the ground is people experiencing the risen Christ and being so transformed by it that they were actually able to persuade other people. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is real. You can encounter him yourself. This is what God is doing. This is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law, the sacrificial system of all the prophecies, of all the types of Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. This has Yahweh's authorization. If you fear God, this is what you will now do. The disciples were transformed from cowards who denied Christ, saying, I don't even know the man, to boldly proclaiming him. What made the difference? What transformed them from people who felt they needed to hide into people who were willing to die for their beliefs? Do you think it's that on that second day they got together and they had a conspiracy and they said, look, I know we're weak and devastated right now. Let's, let's go steal the body. Let's incinerate it. And let's go make up this story to the world that Jesus is actually alive in his teaching. Let's redeem this whole movement. They have no energy. They're weak. They're devastated. And what do they gain from this lie? They gain beatings, beheadings. John was burned in hot oil. Peter was crucified upside down. There was no motivation to do this. And not one of them cracked and said, it's okay, it's a conspiracy. And a conspiracy of the disciples would again, would again have not have convinced James or Paul. There is dramatic evidence for the resurrection that has continued to convert hardened skeptics who when they look at the historical record, this resurrection is not just some historical mystery or fluke. It's the context of a man who fulfilled almost at least 1,500 years of written prophecies, even back further to the Garden of Eden, 4,000 years of, from the initial prophecy of him crushing Satan's heel, I mean, Satan's head. It's this culmination of, of prophecies. Then this resurrection is in the case of the most unique man who has ever lived, the only man who's ever been in this category of claiming to God and also having great ethical lifestyle and great insight and wisdom into life. It's in that context. And after this, there's a, a tremendous amount of influence. If God, let's just, if God decided to become a man, what would this God-man look like? One, God is purely good, so this man would be sinless. God is the creator. God has power over nature. So this God-man would be able to prove his deity by his control over nature. Jesus calmed the storms, healed the sick, raised the dead. This man would have great insight into the human nature. Even people who, can't, who reject Jesus as God admire his teachings as so insightful. Even Gandhi, he said, I love Jesus' teaching. I just can't become a Christian because it's his followers I can't stand. <laughs> but it was Jesus himself that Gandhi had such a great respect for. And people, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, even people who couldn't become, accept his salvation, admired him greatly. Napoleon admired Jesus because there's something amazing about Jesus. If this... God, if God ever did become a man, all history would know about it. He would leave a lasting influence behind. This is such a strong evidence for me. Because Jesus never wrote a book. He never traveled more than 200 miles from his home. He didn't found any universities. He never became rich. He died... As he was dying, the last thing he owned, his cloak, was taken from him. If he was just a poor, misunderstood peasant, his memory would have faded pretty quickly from the earth. But this simple peasant has had more impact on the course of history than any scientific discovery, than any wealthy dictator, than any inventor, than any discovery or change. We date our calendars by his birth, even though someone did the math wrong and we're off a few years, but we try to date 
our calendar from his birth because we see that Jesus is the dividing line in history. Once people encountered the risen Christ, and they put this together, and they got a glimpse, once Paul got a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus, not just man in the flesh, but Jesus, the Creator, who he discovered all things were created by Jesus, for Jesus, for His glory, that all history begins with Jesus creating life, and it ends with all things being made one in Christ or, or separated from Christ. Paul, you read Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1. He gets so excited about Christ because he realizes this is the essence of life. This is the reason we were made. This is the answer to our hurt, our forgiveness, our problem, our sin. This is the answer to the death problem. Jesus conquered the grave. If there's ever a conflict between what Jesus teaches and someone else teaches, ask this other person, have you, have you solved my, the death problem? Because 10 out of 10 people die. Jesus has solved the death problem. He's the only person then that is worth dying for. It says in Romans that whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ is not his. Jesus preached more about hell than heaven. So this should create a moment of pause for all of us. It's incredibly strong evidence that there's a God who created us. It's just absolutely absurd to believe that consciousness could spring from brute matter. That incredible fine-tuned complexity and life could be the result of an explosion. This God has revealed himself in the pages of a written book, confirming it through prophecy, through words of life. This God has revealed himself by taking on human flesh, fulfilling prophecy, living a sinless life, and conquering the grave, and offering to give himself to you. We should be paying attention to what this man says. This man talks about sheep and the goats. Talks about people who will be resurrected to everlasting life and pleasure and people who will be raised from the dead to everlasting destruction. You're going to be dead a lot longer than you're going to be alive. So it seems the most important question to answer is, is, how do I get to be a sheep, not a goat? How do I attain, like Paul says, I will do everything I can, I press on so that by any means I might attain the resurrection to life. That is the question we are going to look at tonight. What must I do to be saved?